Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Romans, page 788 in the Church Bibles. As, as most of you know, we've been working through Romans for quite a while. We took some breaks over the summer, and so here we are this, this morning returning and um, beginning in verse 16, Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. All right, let's hear God's word, verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we um, have sung your praise, and now we gladly come to your throne of grace in faith by the right which is ours through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're asking you now for everything that is needed at this moment so that we can make much of you as your word goes out to believe you and to entrust ourselves to your truth, which is before us now. Every part of your word matters. And so we would ask that you would give us strength to give ourselves to these verses now. And then God letting them work in us only that which is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I said it was a review, so I think it's important to remember that this whole section that we're working through actually begins in chapter 9, and it has to do with one specific thing, with the Jewish response to the gospel, and their response at that time was incredibly poor, so much so that both the Christian Gentiles and the small number of Christian Jews in the church in Rome were asking the question, what in the world is going on? These Jewish people are God's chosen people. They had the patriarchs, they had the law, they had the covenants, they had the sacrificial system, they had epiphanies, they had God's promises to them. And Romans chapter 9 verse 5 says, they can trace the, the very human lineage of the Messiah which, if you think about it, was glorious, and I imagine in some way it, was, it, it made them feel honored. We'll say it like that. All of that help, and yet nothing. And so what you have here is a three-chapter answer in Romans from the apostle to that church on that question. Now, before we go any further, we need to acknowledge two things. One, that for Paul and the church in Rome 
This was a contemporary issue, all right? So the large-scale Jewish rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ excuse me, was happening in real time there. A real-time event, a contemporary issue, and it was weighing on the church. That's a good church, by the way. People, in that case, the Jewish people, were not being converted, and it weighs on the church. And they were struggling with this. And therefore, Paul spills a whole lot of ink to answer their question. Ink, not only to, to the concern, but I think you've noticed that ink to ground that church deeper in the gospel, right? Because the church was a good church because of their concern, but it was also a church. And like every church on this planet, every church needs to be continually grounded in the gospel. And you're going to see this, and I think you already see it, the gospel is all over these chapters. You see, one of the underlining concerns in their question, which was weighing on them, comes right from chapter 9, verse 6. Has God's word failed? That's what they were asking. Has God's word failed? Is this gospel stuff true? Is God's word failing? He did a lot of good things for his own people. He made a lot of good promises for his own chosen people, the Jews. And yet, not much seemed to be happening. That's the first thing we have to acknowledge. The second thing is, I want, you to, I want to bring our attention and so that we can see that almost all of what Paul does to answer that real-time contemporary question, which was weighing on the church, was he takes them on this wonderful tour of the entire Bible, specifically the Old Testament, which now belongs to the Gentiles too. Now, you're going to have to think with me. The, in the Old Testament has five divisions. And what Paul does is he pulls content from each of those divisions. They all get represented. So he quotes from the Pentateuch, um, Exodus, Deuteronomy. He quotes from the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel. He quotes from the minor prophets, Joel and Hosea. He gives a little bit of history, 1 Kings, and he gives wisdom literature, Job and Psalms. So just by principle, Paul uses the whole Old Testament, now hear this, to bring the gospel to light, to bring evangelism to light and a ton of theology to light and to answer that contemporary question, that real-time event which was weighing on the church. And what he does is he's showing us how truly the Bible is just really, yeah, it's 66 books, but it has one main storyline, how God will save fallen rebel people, Jew, Gentile, who cannot save themselves. It's everywhere. So he uses the entire Old Testament to answer their question, and then only at the end, at chapter 11, we'll get to that, I promise, only at the end does he give specific revelation In other words, new information outside of the Old Testament to complete his answer. And I want you to see, and I'm going to suggest to you that this is important for two reasons. First, we have lots of contemporary issues we deal with all the time. We have issues that burden us individually. We have issues that burden us in our family, society, congregationally. And Paul is showing us our first words are God's written words. 
We let it set the framework, establish the principles, shine light, light outside of culture, light, light outside of every context into the culture, onto the answer. And do you notice how Paul, he pulls the lens of his search to get the answer, he pulls it way back. So he just doesn't do with a, deal with a few years like we're tempted to do, but he goes back all the way to the beginning of time, indeed, before time. And second, when Paul gives his answer, he doesn't give his opinion, right? He doesn't say, which we're tempted to do, he said, you know what? There's not a lot of Jews being converted. That means we need to do more of this. You know what? There's not a lot of Jews being converted. That means we need to offer some more of that. Because that's typically the way that we see things. Now, that is not to say that those things are not necessary. They are to a degree, but they are not foundational. And their viewpoint, as you can see in these verses, it's much too small. Again, Paul takes them back to the beginning. He pulls the lens of his camera to answer the question all the way back to show how the hand of God, remember him? God is in all of this. Therefore, God is not surprised of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. God is not shocked. Now, we may be shocked and a bit wiggly about his answer because, you know, election is there and I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That gives us the wiggles, but it doesn't give God the wiggles. So we should appreciate the balance, but more importantly, the balance of how sovereign God is in salvation and yet how necessary human responsibility is in salvation. And that's there all over the place. There was a song that um, was written in 1982. It's Paul McCartney and um, Michael Jackson, um, Ebony and Ivory. Do you know the song? Lives together in perfect harmony. If I listened to that song on a certain Friday night in bed, I'd be in tears. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That song used to make me cry. I don't even know why. Ebony and ivory, right, live together in perfect harmony, side by side on the piano keyboard. Oh, Lord, why can't we? Um, Divine sovereignty, election, human responsibility, evangelism, side by side here. It's inescapable. So Paul follows that line. And if you look at your Bible, the opening part of chapter 9 He gives his heart, and then later on, he gives his truth. He does the same thing in chapter 10. In chapter 9, if you look at it, I'm so sad. I'm paraphrasing. If it was possible for me to be unconverted so that the Jews could be converted, I would do it. That's passion. That's human responsibility. Chapter 10, at the beginning, I want the Jewish people converted with all my heart, and I pray to God all the time for their conversion. Again, passion, human responsibility. But then in chapter 9... And again in chapter 10, he takes them on this journey through the Bible and he marks out all the great doctrines of the faith which underpin the almightiness of God in the gospel. God's plan to save the world in the Old Testament. History, verifiable history. Theology and history pointing to, the, if you would, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And so I look at it like great, huge, thick pillars of truth that every Christian can build an eternally secure and necessary life on. Now, I want you to think with me. Old information, right? 
So that information that Paul has been pulling from has been around for thousands of years, okay? Old information, which Paul says points to the gospel plan to save the world, and specifically the Jews. And he uses that to answer their real-time contemporary question, which is weighing on the church. Why so few Jewish converts? Now, if you don't think that's remarkable, (laughs) then you weren't listening, And I think we always need to be reminded by this kind of thing. So in chapter 9, Paul writes of the sovereignty of God, his immutability, his almightiness. And yes, God, God's election. And yes, human responsibility. And God, chapter 9, he wants to make his wrath known. He wants to make his mercy and glory known. How patient God is with everyone. How problematic works for God's own chosen people. They just couldn't get away. They had so much zeal for work to make them right with God, but it gained them nothing, right? Chapter 10, the very beginning, they had their own made-up plan of salvation. They were zealous, and I promise you, they looked good outwardly doing it, but it was nothing. And then if you look on chapter 10, he continues on with the good news message, goes beyond the Jewish people, right, into the domain of the Gentile people, so that everyone, your friends, your neighbors, your kids, everyone, chapter 10, verse 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then we ended in late August, remember? All right, they're going to be saved. But then those rhetorical questions, verse 14, I hope your Bible's open. How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless somebody preaches to them? And how can they proclaim the gospel unless someone is sent? And then he concludes, just as we would suspect, with a reference to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so here we are in verse 16 then. And he goes deeper to answer the question which was weighing on the church. Three points. Did they, did they hear the gospel? Did they understand the gospel, they being the Jews? And, and then why didn't they believe the gospel? All right? Number one, did they hear the gospel? So Paul begins by acknowledging what they, what they all knew to be true. Verse 16, not all the Israelites accepted the good news for who has believed our message. In some of the older translations, it says, who has believed our report? So I, I, do, you, do you know that song, who has believed, or wait, what was it? Uh, who will believe the report of the Lord? We used to sing it in church when we were kids. Do you shake your head if you've ever heard that song? Probably not. Okay, <laughs> sorry. It wasn't that long ago, but anyway, my wife knew it, so there. <laughs> Isaiah knew the report of the message of the Lord was proclaimed over and over again. Uh, the one to come. And the need of God's own people to be rescued. And the question goes out, is there anyone who believes? And the point Paul is making is, as simple as it may seem to us, is is pretty telling. He's saying that not everyone who hears the gospel, accepts the gospel, or believes the gospel. We're like, okay, duh, right? But here, one of the things Paul is saying at the very beginning of, of the gospel of Romans is that the gospel is God's power for salvation for those who believe. And so what I want you to see first is that Paul is saying that preaching is primary. It's the primary way that God saves the world and awaken faith. It's not the only way, but it's primary. Verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message 
And the message is heard through the word. The Greek word there is rhema. It means the spoken word or the alive word, the active word. And it's singular. It's not plural. It's not words, but word. One word. Gospel. (laughs) Gospel. Now, I want you to bear with me. The fact that he even says that not everyone who hears the gospel accepts the gospel tells me, and I'm going to suggest to you, it tells me an ocean full about Paul and his affection for the gospel. So, so when I read that, it's almost like, I know it's crazy. I know it's unbelievable that once people hear of Christ dying for their sins and giving them forgiveness and giving them a new heart and a new life and promises from God, all yours, and you become God's child, and you get the gift of imputed righteousness, which I can't get over, felt love, spiritual power, spiritual gifts. I know it's crazy that when people hear the gospel and and all that is set before them, people say no to that. People say no to the good news. I mean, that, to me, it would be like years ago when Nicole and I were dating, she, she asked me to go to her cousin's wedding. Well, that would have been the stupidest thing in the world if I would have said no. Yeah. I'm supposed to be the one to ask stuff, not you, right? 30 and a half years later. No-brainer. Of course I would. It should have been a no-brainer. So I read this week of a, a gentleman named Jay Abel. And last Christmas, he put all his favorite comic books and all his favorite comic paraphernalia on sale on eBay and other uh, sites like that so he could buy some Christmas gifts for his kids. So his story is a sad story. His wife passed away three years from last Christmas. He had a lot of terrible things happen in the meantime. And the family was under hardship. So He had a lot of good stuff, and he decided, like a good dad, to sell it so he can give his kids a good Christmas. And so an actor named John Krasinski, if you don't know the name, you probably know him. He he plays Jack Ryan now on Amazon Prime show there, and he was um, Jim in the office. And he saw what the dad was selling online, and he said, I'm going to buy a lot of the dad's stuff, you know, to help the dad. And... When he bought this stuff, or tried to buy it, I should say, he was like making super generous bids. He was way overpricing everything. And essentially what happened to John Krasinski, he was told no on one site. He was called a fraudulent buyer on another site, or he was just flat out rejected. And you see, what happened was the dad noticed that, that every bid that John made, he, John didn't use his name, the, the, the accounts were created in minutes of the bid, and of course, the bids were super, super generous, so the dad's like, yeah, that's not true. He didn't believe it. In fact, in one platform, the dad says, this feels fishy. Sorry, hope you understand. Good luck in the future. <laughs> it was a nice way of saying, I don't believe you. He was saying, it's all too good to be true. That is some of what was happening here. It was too good to be true. The only difference was it wasn't so much that they'd think it wasn't too good to be true. They just thought that Jesus wasn't enough, right? So they had all the religious zeal and their work stuff. And, and along comes Paul and, and the prophets and says, faith, the righteous live by faith. And so the gospel's cool, but it needs a little bit more muscle behind it. It's the same thing today. 
Gospel's cool. Jesus is cool. But, you know, we need a little bit more muscle behind it. A little bit of, uh, quote, spiritual power. However, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, the New Testament says, the Old Testament says, they were offered everything they would ever need and what they were in perilous need of, which they could not produce out of themselves in the birth, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. You just couldn't get it. Do you know these hymns, not all the blood of beast, Isaac Watts, not all the blood of beast on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. They didn't believe that. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It tells you to fly and it gives you wings. They didn't believe that. Oh, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness now and forever is not in me, but only you. They didn't believe that. Now, I want to ask you, do you you hear that? And do you believe that? I believe it. Do you live your life in light of that truth? Verse 17, faith, saving Faith comes by hearing, not by working, not by sacrificing, hearing the word about Jesus Christ. And so here's Paul's question, but I ask, did they not hear? And what does Paul say? Of course they did. And then he quotes Psalms. Psalm 19, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you know Psalm 19, you know that's a creation psalm, and it's all about creation. And it tells us that creation basically tells everybody about God all the time, day and night, God, God, God. And what Paul does is he takes that creation psalm, and he turns it into a global witness of the gospel psalm, and he jumps on it and tells us that the gospel is going out everywhere. Now, think of it like this. If God makes the general revelation of himself through creation, in other words, people generally know, Romans 1, Psalm 19, that there's a God, and they might try to suppress that truth by all kinds of things, but they know hard in there's a God, and so he does make himself known. He wants his special revelation of his grace in the gospel to be known by everyone, and of course, God does. It's the universal proclamation of the gospel. And the idea here is Paul is directing the truth to answer the question and essentially saying this, everywhere around the world, wherever a Jewish community exists, there the gospel hasn't been preached. That's what he's saying. Now, let me just explain to you why, because you want to say, okay, how so? So I want, you, I want to give you one possible answer, and you need to think with me. Wherever a Jewish community exists, And they have, as their sacred text, the Old Testament, the same Old Testament text that Paul's been using to answer his question of why so many Jewish, or so few Jewish converts. Paul is saying that same Old Testament text, which I've been using, if that is there in those Jewish communities, then the gospel is there. Okay? But not just Paul, Jesus. Because Jesus understood the Old Testament scriptures in the same exact way. Here are the classic examples. John chapter 5, verse 39. You pour over the scriptures. What scriptures? Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says. Because you presume that, that by them you possess eternal life. They, these are, Old Testament scriptures are testifying 
about me. In other words, they, they report on me. They tell me. They bear witness about me, Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John chapter 8, verse 40, 56, Jesus is talking to his Jewish folks. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You understand, Abraham saw the gospel, the day of Christ, and his communion with God, and it made him happy, because that's what good news does. Jesus to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, the Nicodemus who didn't understand Jesus when he said, you must be born again. And so when he says, I don't know what you mean, Jesus' first response was, well, let me explain to you what I mean. Do you know what he says to him? John chapter 3, verse 10, you are Israel's teacher of the Old Testament, and you do not understand these things? You teach the Old Testament. You're a master teacher of the Old Testament, and you can't see me in the Old Testament. Luke 26, just a couple of more. The road to Emmaus, Jesus talking to the two disciples. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets? In other words, the first five books of the Bible and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures concerning himself, He goes on, he opened their minds, Luke says, so they could understand the scriptures. Okay, Jesus opens their mind. They can understand the scriptures. He told them, okay, this is his understanding. This is what is written in the Old Testament. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. (laughs) One last example. I know you want to kick me, but one more. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, the rich man, I beg you, Father, he's, he's suffering in torment. I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let them warn them about this terrible place so, so they will not come to this place of torment. And then what did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Old Testament. Let them listen to uh, him. And what does the rich man say? No, Father Abraham, right? Just like a rich person giving, giving orders from the other side of life, you know? I'm going to tell you what to do. No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, right? So you send someone knocking on their door who's risen from the dead, they're going to go, help me, Jesus. But you know what the Bible says? Abraham says, listen, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Is that not what happened to the Jewish people at this time? They didn't listen to their Old Testament. And then they have, and many of them could bear witness to the risen Christ, all the number of disciples say, he is risen. They will not be convinced, and they weren't convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I want to ask you, do you see that? Do you see that? Because that is fundamental to how you understand your Old Testament and how you learn from your own Old Testament. Did they, God's chosen people, hear the gospel? Yes, they did. God sent his word to the ends of the earth, preachers, prophets, to the ends of the earth. And so wherever a Jewish community existed, there the gospel has been preached. The sacrificial system, the prophets all pointed those people to the need of for a savior, Messiah. This is good what we were doing, but something more is needed. And thank God something more is coming. And he came, and yet they rejected him. Second point, 
Did they understand the gospel? You see the question, verse 19? Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? And his answer, again, is, of course they did. And then he quotes Moses. I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. The context there, which Paul quotes from, is not a nation or not an ethnic people and a people or a nation with no understanding. Those people are the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles who didn't understand the message are going to be used by God to provoke his chosen people to some kind of emotion. And you see the two emotions, to jealousy and anger towards the no nation towards the Gentiles who, because of God, God's blessing that he would give them, which was conversion, all right? So you have a people who should know, but know, and you have a people who should know, but don't know. I mean, how many times as a parent have you said, well, I've told you everything. <laughs> you should know this by now. The Jewish people knew of the holiness of God and God's very nature. The Gentiles did not. They knew, the Jewish people, they knew, to, knew they needed forgiveness. And they knew that there was a promise of forgiveness by substitution. The Gentiles did not. The Jewish people knew that some kind of sacrifice was needed, implicit in the, in the tabernacle and the temple worship. The Gentiles did not. They knew that all the promises of the Messiah, that they knew them, and they knew that there was one to come. And they knew, listen carefully, this is in Jeremiah, they knew that God would become the very righteousness that they needed. That's hints of, of justification, of imputed righteousness. The Gentiles did not. And yet they were converted. No wonder the, the Jews were jealous. The Gentiles didn't understand God, and yet they bowed to the gospel so God, in a sense, if you would, he, he, he shows up the Jews. And God brings them to a place of envy. Now, are you uncomfortable with what I just said? Because if, if you ask the question, what would provo provoke Jews to a place of jealousy? The better question is, who would provoke the Jews to jealousy? If your Bible's open, you'll see who the who is. Who is the I who is the I will? I will make you envious. I will make you angry. Verse 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Who is the I? It's God. It's God. You see, loved ones, as hard as it is to say and maybe to hear, this, this whole section is on God's election. Salvation, Paul is saying, ultimately rests on God, on God's election. Now, that does not mean that and doesn't negate human responsibility. It's, it's legitimate human responsibility. Paul makes that clear. But any honest reader would have to say the emphasis here is all on the action and all on the activity of God. The grace of God came to those who were not looking for it. Verse 20. By the way, does that not sound a little bit like Paul's conversion? Was Paul searching for Jesus when Paul was converted? But he was like, you know, I'm really interested in the Jesus guy. Absolutely not. It was totally the other way around. God is saying from his word, the people who are going to, to find me are the people who never sought me. That the people who will be given the answer are those who never asked the questions. And I, God, 
ultimately am behind this. So we still go out and preach, absolutely. Paul clearly says that in the middle part of the chapter. People still need to say yes, absolutely. All of it human responsibility, but ultimately it is grace. Everyone who comes to Christ, as, as, if you would, as you back yourself all the way back and go right to the roots of it, everyone is saved by grace. That is divine sovereignty, which means at the end of the day, in order that no one may boast, and if you might want to turn here, Romans chapter 9, verse 11, in order that the purposes of God in election might stand, not by works, but by him who called, right out of the Bible, salvation is a generous gift from God, indeed the God of all grace. Do you see this? This is what gives the Christian stability in the day in and day out of life. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and God has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose. It, literally, it's God's pre-thesis, right? Before anything started, this was God's thesis, I'm going to save people. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So in order that there will never be a boast in a conversion other than Christ and him crucified, the one ultimate explanation why anyone is saved who is, who, or who has ever been saved is God. There is nothing in us that contributes to our salvation, nothing at all. That is why our salvation in this life and in the life to come is so rock solid because it stands on God. And if you have not seen it before, surely in light of all these passages, we can see it now. And by golly, we can see it from the Old Testament now. So if salvation were the result of human understanding or human knowledge, human works, if that was foundational, then the Jews should have been in position, a fine position to take advantage and be converted. And the Gentiles who knew nothing, completely hopeless. But in fact, it works the other way around. And it's the Gentiles who have come to life and the Jews who remain outside of life. Final point, quickly, did they hear the gospel? Yes. Did they understand the gospel? Yes. Finally, then why didn't they believe the gospel? The first answer, we'll get to the next one next Sunday, Lord willing, but verse 21, here it is. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, there you go. That's human responsibility. He denounces them. He makes them culpable. God gave the Gentiles nothing close to what the Jews had. Yet they have responded better than the Jews. Again, it's like a parent inviting a child to come here. Come here, I'm going to give you lots of love and lots of kisses. I got your whole life ordered for you and I'm going to pour into you. And the child says, no. What is that? Well, it's obstinance. disobedient. God opens his arms. Notice all day long. Come, come on, come on, come on. All day long. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Yet nothing. Remember Jesus' words? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather you together like children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet you are not willing. Why? Disobedient and obstinate. Their fall was their fault. Rejecting, listen, rejecting saving faith, 
for essentially self-righteousness. Not in the mean sense of that word, just the practical sense. Self-righteousness. Now, let me say this, and we'll get to some points and we're done. You remember in chapter 3, Paul said that everyone is sinners, and there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so he says, no one's saved by circumcision. And then he lists all the failures of Israel. Then he asks the question, okay, what good is it in being a Jew? So do you remember his answer? This is what he said. Much in every way, because the Jews were given the oracles of God. In other words, they had the scripture, the oracles of God. It was all right in front of them. And yet, what did they do? They rejected. Here's the good news. We're going to find out that their story is not over. Their story isn't over. God has a happy ending for his people, his chosen people. So let's just take a few applications from this. Number one, just ask yourself if the gospel isn't part of the passage that you're looking at in the Bible, then ask yourself, if you don't see it, then what good is it? I mean, where does the power come to obey? If the Bible says do this, how can we do it outside of Jesus Christ? We can't. And when you look at your Old Testament, look at it through the lens of Jesus. That's what Paul did here. He gave this answer to this contemporary issue using Old Testament truth that just was saturated with gospel truth. So you have an issue at home? You have an issue at home? You have an issue somewhere? I wrote this down for you. Before you feel led to decide whatever you decide, decide, make sure you are well read. Right? Before you're led, make sure you're well read. And of course, the reading is from the Bible, just like Paul did. Third, if you are saved by grace, then, then ask yourselves, how do you treat the unbelieving world, and also believers. You remember the parable that Jesus taught of the man who had a great debt, debt and the master who he um, who was holding the guy's debt, he just forgave it all. So the guy goes home and he should be happy. Yet there's a, another man who owes him just a little bit of stuff, a little debt. And he goes to the man and it's hell's bells on him. Brothers and sisters, that should not be us. Who are Gentiles. Who didn't start out the way the Jews did. But by God's grace, we're saved. We only have one boast. We only have one plea. Because we only have one Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, lastly, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, 
They really do live together in perfect harmony. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> they do. It's there in the New Testament. Let it be in our heads and our hearts. Thanks for your time today. Let's pray. God and Father, when we, when we read John 3.16, for you shall love the world that you gave your one and only son, that's truthful, but it's so modest of you because we could actually say that you shall love the world that way back before there was time, way back in the beginning of time, way back in the early years of time in the Jewish history, you were proclaiming the gospel in all kinds of ways through your prophets, beginning with Abel all the way to Zechariah, as Jesus said. Thank you that you are a loving God who desires to save the world. And we thank you, God, that in the beauty of Jesus Christ, you're going to save, who, you're going to save the world. That those who cry out to you in faith, repenting and putting their trust in Jesus Christ. They will be yours, and they'll be part of your family forever and ever, world without end. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you right now and give you peace. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.